or 715. Um, apparently the uh, kids programs start at 7, but the adults have tended over the years to spend the first 15 minutes uh, fellowshipping a bit. Uh, so I talked to Pastor Ken and to, to uh, Pastor Bill, and the consensus was that we'll start the adult programming at 715, but we're going to start at 715 sharp, so... Uh, cause, so in order to, to do that, so no wandering in, uh, as, as though I can prevent that. But, uh, but that's, that's the plan, so we'll, we'll make it 7.15 to 8.15, and we'll start, we'll start right on time each, each, each week in order to make sure we get through that, okay? Yeah, if that opens, I'd love it. Well, we'll go ahead and start with uh, just a, uh, a quick overview of what we're going to be doing. Um, I think there's a course description in, on, the, uh, on, the, on the net classroom here, um, and uh, it's a topical survey of theological events and circumstances yet in the future. Okay, so uh, we're not going to walk through the book of Revelation. It's not, it's not going to be an exegetical survey. It's going to be a topical survey. So we're going to start with death, the afterlife, the second coming of Christ, the, uh, the, the tribulation, the millennium, the eternal state. And so we're going to go through it topically, somewhat chronologically, but, uh, but topically. So uh, recognize that that's the way we're going to do it. So we're not going to give all the answers as to uh, what the wings are on the little locust human horse guy that you find in, in Revelation, that's not really going to be part of the discussion here. Uh, it's really a topical discussion of those, of those topics. And so I list them here, death, resurrection, judgment, and the afterlife. So we're going to start what, with what I, talk of, what I call individual eschatology. So what happens to the individual moving forward? So we're going to talk about what is death? What happens when a person dies? What does the intermediate state look like? How does that transition then to the resurrected state uh, uh, when, when the consummation comes? Okay, so that, that'll take probably the first two, three weeks, talking about, we'll talk about what I talk about, individual eschatology, talk a little bit about what the judgment looks like. Uh, when will you get judged? What, what will the judgment... What, what form will it take? Will there be a big TV screen where everybody gets to see everything you've done in your life? Now, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll talk about those things, individual, and then we'll talk about what I call global eschatology. So um, we're talking, okay, the rapture of the saints, the tribulation that comes over the whole world, Christ's coming, second coming, and power and glory, the millennial state, and then the eternal state. So that's the uh, so those are the uh, topics that we'll go through. Like I say, about first three weeks individual, and then the last eight weeks uh, we'll give to uh, the uh, global uh, dimensions of this. So we'll meet from seven o'clock. Excuse me, I've got a more on this in a second here, but. Um, my dad is in the hospital, not doing really well, and so I'm, 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 I'm managing about 50 things at once here. Uh, 
So uh, just, just to sort of let you know if I'm a little distracted here. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, we will meet ordinarily from 7.15 to 8.15 on Wednesdays, starting tonight and ending December 15th. Uh, we will have two weeks off in November, uh, November 17 and November 24th. 24th is, is Thanksgiving, so I, I can't imagine anybody would really be pounding down the door that night. But the 17th, I have a professional conference that I need to go to uh, in uh, Texas, and so the week before that. So the 17th and the 24th, we will not meet. I'll, let you, I'll remind you once we get closer to that, but just to be aware of that. Now, there's 32 people in the class. Um, not all of you are here, so there's apparently some out there in uh, internet land. Uh, those of you who are out there, uh, by signing into the class, uh, your attendance is being taken. Um, if you have questions, uh, you are able to ask them. Uh, you can't, we, can't, we can't hear you, uh, but uh, I have in front of me uh, the, uh, the app for uh, for the class and there's a there's a there's a there's a place where you can uh, on the side of your screen where you can put messages and if you put in a mess in the message line a question that you have about uh, what we're doing here in the uh, in the class some 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 topical question well you can ask that and I should see it um, I'm going to have John back there in the back sort of keeping an eye out for questions too because I might miss one. Uh, but uh, you're, you're part of the class, and I know you might not feel like you're part of the class, but I want you to be able to participate. You're here live in, in, in real time, hopefully, and uh, you're able to ask questions live and in real time as well. So, uh, so don't uh, discount that possibility. Don't feel awkward doing that. Maybe weird the first time, but it, 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 it should become normal for us. Okay? Uh, the textbook here is Herman Hoyt's The End Times. Uh, I'm pretty much following his outline in the course, so if you want to sort of track along with the class, uh, you're welcome to do that. Um, and, uh, and so if, you, if you're taking the class, I say here for credit, uh, the, the, this, this class series started as a, gr a small group of men uh, who, who, have been, who had been sort of uh, aspiring to leadership positions in the church, uh, possible uh, deacon, elder, part of the leadership team. And so uh, we have some, we have some we, if, if you want to take it for that, and I know a couple of these guys are still here, you have to read the book. Uh, that's, that's part of the requirement here for completing that curriculum. Uh, the rest of you don't have to read the book, but I recommend it. Um, I think it will fill in some of the gaps that we're unable to fill here uh, as we go through the material in class. Okay? Every week we're going to start out with, I, I call it a quiz here, but it's really just an oral evaluation. I might actually have a, have a paper quiz that I hand out uh, just so you can you know, answer some questions and then we'll review it. Uh, I'll try and try and give a strategic review of some of the things so you know you hear, hear this material more than once. So if you review and we go over it again, you get the material as many as three different times and usually that helps it stick a little bit better. So um, don't, 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 don't obsess over the quizzes, but if you can review your material uh, uh, before you come to class, I think you'll, you'll be able to get a little bit more out of it. Uh, by virtue of the quizzes, so that's their purpose. 
Okay, so any questions about what we plan to do here in the class? Yeah, I do need to let you know that uh, my dad is uh, in hospital and not doing well. There is at least a possibility uh, that I may have to uh, cancel a class somewhere along the way. Uh, maybe make sure you check the uh, church center here um, before you come to class, just, just, to, just to be sure. I'm, I'm going to attempt to be here, but uh, just recognize that there are some contingencies that are... Uh, that are uh, that are on me right now, so just be aware of that. Okay? Yes, sir. Uh, could you give us uh, your dad's name and uh, something we can pray for? Yeah, his name's Jim, Jim Snowberger, and uh, they're not actually sure what's wrong with him. Um, he's, it's a neurological disorder of some sort, leading possibility right now is Guillain-Barre syndrome or Guillaume. Barre syndrome, as it's supposed to be pronounced, but nobody does. Um, and uh, it's, it's basically his, he's lost uh, basically all use of his legs, and it's creeping up into his torso. Typically, that lasts for about, f it, it advances for four weeks and then slowly recedes. If it advances too far, why, it can be fatal. So, so... Uh, same way as mine, so S-N-O-E-B-E-R-G-E-R. -E -E sure thing. So all of you should have a set of paper notes. Anybody didn't get a set of paper notes? I think I had a, a faithful guy in the back there. I was handing them out, so everybody got one. Uh, there's also uh, a, an electronic copy, a PDF, that is available online as well, so if you forget it sometime or you're at home, uh, you can access it there. So those of you who are out there uh, online, you should have access to these notes in PDF form. Uh, it's, it's their course notes is one of the uh, documents, yeah, resources associated with the class. So if you just click on the resources uh, within our class, you'll see the notes there and you should be able to track right along. Okay? So uh, you can see here that uh, um, I give a little bit of an introduction here. just want to introduce some key terms and give a little bit of introduction here. Uh, end times is one of those things uh, where interest waxes and wanes, and it's usually not because of exegetical concerns. It's usually things that are happening within society, right? When things are going poorly within society, particularly for Christians, uh, we tend to yearn for and anticipate what's going to be hereafter. Uh, I don't want to say that we're looking for an escape, but we are, I think, looking more fondly and eagerly towards the next, the next step, the next phase. And that's, that's to be expected. Um, and then sometimes when the church is doing well, and, and we'll find this particularly when we're talking about the millennium, uh, we tend to find that in, in seasons where the church is in the ascendancy, doing really well, uh, there tends to be very little interest in eschatology because it's, we're, we're experiencing success and, and, and ascendancy as, as a church. Uh, I think, for, for instance, during the medieval period, uh, when the Roman Catholic Church dominated 
at least European society. Uh, they, they migrated to the idea of amillennialism, that we're effectively in the millennium now. Uh, the church is the kingdom, and we're, we're doing really well. Uh, but uh, then when you have seasons where the church is doing poorly, uh, there tends to be a, a migration of thought towards premillennialism, that we're not in the millennium now, but there's going to be a time when we will be. Okay? But we want to make sure that we're not using societal factors to determine what our eschatology is. Uh, we, we, we want to make sure that we're looking at the Word of God and using that as our bedrock, our, our, our standard here, whereby we can uh, determine uh, how things are going to unfold. Okay? And so it's, I think it's important that we, we do that. Okay? I've got a glossary of terms there at the bottom of that first page here. Um, and I want to make sure we understand these. I, I, it, we're not so much trying to defend anything here or, or, or pick one of the many options at this point. Okay? Uh, we're just trying to tell you what are the kinds of terms that we're going to use. Uh, because I'm going to slip into using some, you can see here, some of, these are, some of these are big words, a little bit technical words, but we really can't avoid using them, so I just want to introduce them. In fact, I've used one already, right? Eschatology, uh, uh, which is our first term, right? It's the study of end times. Ology is the study of, eschatos is last. So, uh, so it's the end, the study of end times and end events. And so this term also appears in a, in a noun form, the eschaton, that is the end times, um, and also the adjective, uh, adjective form eschatological, that is having to do with the end times. And so we'll use all of these terms uh, as we work through the course. So eschatology, when I say eschatology, it's not, it may be a big scary word right now. All it simply means is the study of the end. Okay. Second coming is the return of Christ to, in, in glory to establish the new world order. Now, the second coming, as we're going to suggest, can be broken down into two phases. Uh, this is a, a matter of some debate that uh, perhaps, uh, and perhaps we're not even all on the same page even in, within the room. But uh, usually when we're talking about if, if there's, if there's two, two phases, uh, a, uh, a, uh, uh, the, uh, the first phase to retrieve the church and the second phase in order to establish his reign. The second coming usually has to do with the coming of Christ in power and glory. Uh, so when we say the second coming, we're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about the, uh, about the final coming of Christ to establish, uh, establish his kingdom on earth. Okay? Sometimes also called the second advent. Uh, we talk about Advent season, right? You know, uh, the first Advent is Christmas time, right? That's his first coming, his first arrival. Okay, and then the second Advent would be his second arrival. Okay, so that's where the, those terms uh, come in. Okay, now we've already used this term too as well, rapture. Again, there, there are many within the Christian tradition who deny the idea of a rapture, uh, we're going to try and defend it here, but for now, let's just define what it is. The, the rapture is the sudden return of Christ to remove his church from the world, but not to directly affect any other changes in the world order. So, uh, 
Most who hold to this rapture suggest that the church will be removed and then a period of seven years of tribulation will come upon the whole world, but the church will avoid, it will escape this period of, of, of tribulation, which is to come on the whole earth and uh, functions as a time of Jacob's trouble, as it's called in the Old Testament, a time whereby uh, Israel is particularly harried uh, by uh, world powers, and a remnant, a large remnant, will turn uh, to Christ, to this Messiah that previously they had, had refused to, to acknowledge uh, when he came the first time. Okay, So uh, the rapture here is something that's held only by premillennialists. Okay, so the rapture is distinguished from the second coming. The rapture is the first coming where he simply comes to retrieve the church, but not actually to establish a kingdom. Uh, and then the second coming, seven years later, is where Christ comes to establish his kingdom. Now, again, like I say, there's, there's debate here. Uh, some of you perhaps uh, come from a tradition in which the idea of a rapture is just bizarre, uh, well, well, we'll see if we can't make the case biblically for it, and uh, we'll, we'll work through that. Hopefully we can do that in a very ironic way. So the millennium then, millennium, uh, you can see there, you're familiar with that term, right? We use that, uh, mille is a thousand, annum is year, so it's a period of a thousand years, in which Christ reigns over the earth, really uncontested, if I can put it that way. And so uh, within, the, uh, within the tradition that we're going to be defending here, perhaps we could put it on the board here, if there's a piece of chalk. Uh, there, uh, so here's the beginning of the church age. There will be a rapture, okay, followed by a period of seven years of tribulation followed by 1,000 years of kingdom called the millennium, okay? That's, that's the sequence we're going to defend in here. Not all follow this precise sequence, and we'll try and uh, defend this within, within the marketplace of options, okay? So belief in a millennium is sometimes called millennialism, or sometimes an older way of putting it is kiliasm. So those are two words that uh, have to do with this idea of millennium. So premillennialism is the belief that the second coming of Christ precedes the millennium. So the second coming of Christ precedes the millennium. Um, and then this millennium is a literal, visible, 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. Um, there's two other options here uh, within the... Uh, broadly Christian tradition. Post-millennialism is the idea that Christ's reign, or this millennium, such as it is, I mean, I'll put the M there because they still talk about a kingdom, but let's, let's the, usually it's not a thousand years, okay? So, so erase all this and say we are in an advancing kingdom, okay? The kingdom has begun, but it is advancing to a climax. Once we 
as Christians, can convert enough of the world, uh, can restore the world to some of its more pristine situation, you know, put Christians into the judiciary and the presidency and, and in, uh, in economics. And if we, can, if we can just advance enough as Christians in every sphere of life, then we'll get to a tipping point and Christ will come and sort of cap it all off with a grand, a grand display, and that, and that pretty much ends uh, history as we know it. The eternal, there's a judgment, and the eternal state begins. Okay, so that's post-millennialism. This dominated uh, uh, Protestant Christianity from the 17th to the 19th centuries. So, um, you know, I, I said that in the Roman Catholic world, amillennialism, which is our next one, dominated. Post-millennialism dominated the first three centuries of Protestantism, okay? And uh, pre-millennialism, on the other hand, has tended, uh, it has been at the extremes, okay? The first three centuries of the church were pre-millennial, and there has been a, a spike of pre-millennial interest uh, in the last century and a half or so, Okay? So amillennialism basically says there is no kingdom per se. Uh, certainly the uh, descriptions of, of, of the grand, uh, uh, you know, of grandness, economic, uh, you know, social justice, economic freedom, um, uh, you know, lack of disease and all that, those things aren't going to happen. Those are simply metaphors of what is going to happen in the life of the church. So uh, if uh, if, if post-millennialism sort of naturalizes everything and says Christ does not have to come back in order to make it happen, the amillennialist says it, it, it spiritualizes all of the promises of the kingdom. Uh, so all the promises, all the details of the Old Testament that, that tell us what the kingdom is going to be like, we should, we should spiritualize all of those and, and understand them to be uh, experiences that the church is having now. So the church is the kingdom, okay? And so whenever we're, you know, going about, we're doing kingdom work all of the time. Uh, but it's not the same kind of kingdom as is anticipated in premillennialism or postmillennialism. Does that, does any, anything, does that, does that follow? I, mean, I know, I know I'm throwing a lot of data at you right now. Again, I'm not trying to defend any of these per se, just Make sure you understand what these terms mean. If you need a review, just, just holler. Okay. I know sometimes you're slow to, to holler. So, so, so please do, though. I mean, we've, we've, got, we've got plenty of time to review. Um, and so if you didn't follow something I just said, you're, you're probably not the only one. Yes? The, the prefix ah-millennialism, ah means not? Yes. Well, it seems like one's trying to force the kingdom to occur. Yeah, the, right. The times, uh, it, it depends. There's a lot of different sub-traditions within post-millennialism, I can put it that way. Many do not see a time of the Gentiles as something of a parenthesis, but rather the Gentiles are, are grafted into the one people of God. And so the times of the Gentiles 
doesn't, doesn't really mean that there's a, a period of time where God's concerned about the Gentiles and then there's a return to the Jews afterward, but rather the Gentiles are now part of the one people of God. And so from that point on, uh, the times of the Gentiles is ongoing. There isn't, in, for most post-millennialists, there is no return to, of God's attention to the Jewish nation. For some there is, but for, for most, uh, we become spiritual Israel as Gentiles. Right. <clears throat> Yeah, okay. So for in post-millennialism, the idea here is that when Christ died on the cross, when he rose again, and the statement is made, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, that at that point, the kingdom began. Okay? And even though he's gone away, he is still, from heaven, overseeing the advance of his kingdom. Okay? And so, you know, so over the course of church history, uh, the kingdom is advancing. And it became particularly popular uh, during the uh, Industrial Revolution, uh, after, after the period after the Enlightenment into the, uh, into the Industrial Revolution. Things seemed to be tripping along so well, particularly for Europeans, right? Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of advances being made medicines are being developed so that diseases are put to rest forever. Um, there's, there's, there's an address of many of the social injustices going on. Um, you know, there, better agricultural techniques are being used, and so we're able to feed more people. Pe fewer people are starving. And so there's, there seemed to be a, 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 a progress that was going on. And the church was at the helm. You know, the church was in the lead. And so the idea was that we're going to usher in the kingdom not merely by sharing the gospel and seeing people saved, but also by implementing all of these aspects of a kingdom. So a kingdom is not just a matter of there being people, but there's actually a, a law, there are rulers, there are, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an economic plan, a, a, a system of justice. And so to have a kingdom, you have to have all those things. And so the, the idea was that, the, that Protestant Christianity was introducing all of those things to the Western world, and we were advancing towards a utopia. Um, now, all that sort of fell apart, uh, particularly with World War I. But... Uh, um, but it's Even interesting. There was still plenty of evil in the world. Right, right. But there was, but there was the idea that was that we were progressing. But World War I especially made people aware that things aren't getting better. Um, World War I is, is an interesting intersection in history uh, because uh, what, what we have is 19th century war methods and 20th century war machines. And they come together and it's it's some of the most horrific warfare uh, that you that the world has ever seen. Um, so it used to be, you know, you know, one army would come across the field, and the other army would come across the field, and they'd shoot at each other three times, and and one army would run away, and and the, this army was 
triumphant. The guns weren't all that accurate, so not all that many people were killed. And so, and, 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 but then what happens in World War I? Well, you know, one, arm, one army marches across the field, and then you have three guys with machine guns at the other end, and they killed them all. And, 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 and that's what happened. And so it was, and then, of course, the, World War I, of course, is well known for its gas warfare um, and, and disease, like you said. Um, and so it was, just, it was just a horrific window of time. And it was, it's almost like overnight there was a realization that we are not getting better. <laughs> we, we are not advancing towards a Christian utopia. We blew it here. And so there was sort of a period of, I don't know, a lot of jockeying for position, if I can. And so during the, uh, during the 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, there's quite a bit of debate as to how we should rethink eschatology. And so and, and the fruit, some of the fruit of that here is... Uh, the premillennialism that that we're going to try and defend here. Is that does that did that answer your question? Um, which one would go under the like replacement theology type of idea? Um, it, both both amillennialism and postmillennialism, but especially amillennialism. Both of those are reformed uh, schemes of eschatology. Okay, other thoughts? I read somewhere once that's why uh, a lot of the churches built hospitals. Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. Yes. Yeah, even, even, even today we've still got Baptist hospitals and St. Saint Luke's and St. Joseph's and all of those hospitals are still with us because of this idea that we are trying to make the world a Christian world and this kingdom is going to feature not only Christian people but healthy people and wealthy people and, and, and people who get social justice and people, you know, and so, so, so that's why the, and it was a period of time where the social justice ends up dominating. So all of these things start to squeeze out the gospel. The gospel almost becomes unnecessary, okay? Because the church is doing all these other things, and and the and the gospel sort of fades, um, and so it's a period sometimes called the social gospels. You move particularly into the 19th century, uh, where a theological liberalism—not political liberalism, but theological liberalism—dominated the scene, and and the gospel almost disappears. Missions became dominant, though. Foreign. Yes, I mean there there were there were voices that were that were that were you know pushing against the majority, but I, I, the the liberal majority, the gospel pretty much disappears. Now there are within, like you say, there within uh, within conservative Christianity a concern to keep the gospel front and center. But even there, a lot of the early missions. Um, you sometimes hear the term that they, they, they were sort of colonial missions or imperialist missions. And so some of, some of the missions work, particularly as you go into India and Africa, uh, looked more like exploitation than it did gospeling sometimes. So, yeah. yeah I was just thinking, like, um, I 
we kind of have the same sort of thing in our day in a way with people in the elect who, with their strong support for Israel, they're like trying to push or force, force or move the agenda along by making sure the Israel is... Yeah. And that's, that's one of the questions we're going to have to ask. If, in fact, Israel is going to make another surge here at the end, is there any responsibility that we as the church have to the modern state of Israel? Um, and so that's a question that we're going to have to raise and, and answer. Uh, I'm not going to do it tonight, but, but uh, yeah, it's, that is a question that we're going to have to address. Okay. Couple of more terms here, um, all having to do then with this tribulation. So let's go back to our original diagram here, and uh, uh, well, we'll start. Which one do I start with? Pre-tribute. So uh, we'll start with this one here. Remember, uh, here's the tribulation. Here's the millennial. This is the this is the scheme that we're defending here. Okay, so there's going to be a rapture that is pre-tribulational. Okay, so before the tribulation, there's going to be a rapture of the saints in order to take them to heaven. Okay, and so then there will be a period of seven years of tribulation followed by the second coming and the millennium. So that's pre-tribulationalism, which is what we're going to be defending here. There are also those who hold to a form of mid-tribulationism. So the idea is that we start, the church starts into this tribulation, but before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the very worst of the tribulation, the church is going to be removed. Sometimes it's called the pre-wrath rapture view, and there's, there's multiple variations along the way here, but, uh, but a mid-tribulation or a pre-wrath rapture, uh, so we'll be part of the, original, part of the initial uh, uh, tribulation, uh, but not the whole thing. Uh, you say, well, why does, it, why does this all matter at all? Well, because of the details of the tribulation. The tribulation begins when a treaty is struck by the Antichrist with the people of Israel, okay? And a temple is built, sacrific the sacrificial system resumes up until the midpoint of the tribulation where the Antichrist basically blows everything up, okay? He... He, uh, he, he, he puts an end to the, to the, uh, to the is Israelite uh, temple worship and the, and the cultists there. And so the question, if in fact we're going to be here for the first three and a half years, then we should anticipate during the church age that that temple's got to be rebuilt. And that Israel has to rise and we have to help them. And, and so... so so if, you're, if we're talking about a mid-tribulational rapture, it's going to actually make an adjustment here to the mission of the church. Okay? Uh, whereas the pre-millennialist, a uh, pre-tribulationalist, says there's nothing that we have to do other, in, with, with respect to the world around us, is other than to you know, preach the gospel and secure converts for Jesus Christ. Okay, that's 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 all we have to we, all we have to do. We don't have to worry about making the world a better place. We don't have to worry about it, you know, helping Israel build a, build a temple. Uh, it's just a matter of the mission of the church towards those who are without being pretty much reduced to uh, the uh, the the sharing of the Christian gospel. The th the third view here 
uh, is post-tribulationism, okay? And if I can redraw this again, there is going to be a period of tribulation that begins. Uh, sometimes there's some question as to whether it's seven years, uh, but there's going to be a period of tribulation. The church endures it, and right at the very end, when Christ comes, the second coming, is basically the same time that the church is brought up. So uh, the idea here is that Christ arrives, the church basically goes up to escort him to the earth, and he establishes the millennial kingdom. Okay, So that's, uh, that's the post-tribulational view of the rapture. In fact, most who hold to that don't even like to use the word rapture uh, because they don't want to be confused with those crazies who believe uh, that Jesus is just going to sort of whisk all the Christians away. Okay, I'm one of the crazies, so I can call myself that. Okay, uh, so those, so so we rec recognize that the when we talk about pre-tribulationalism, mid-tribulationalism, post-tribulationalism, we're using a different reference point than we're talking about premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. Right? That that's that that can be very confusing. Right? Uh, so the 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 Millennial positions have, are with reference to the second coming of Christ. The, tri, pre -tri, the, the tribulational positions have to do with that initial coming of Christ as a, in the rapture. Okay, so uh, we recognize that we have two different reference points going uh, when we talk about pre, mid, and post-trib, and pre, ah, and post-mill. Does that, does that follow? Am I, am I as thick as mud here? Okay. Post-tribulationalism is really the uh, majority of conservative evangelicalism. Uh, so... Uh, you know, I, it's almost, it's, it, the list is almost so long that it's, it's, it's hard to single out somebody, but uh, uh, that, that's the dominant position at Southern Seminary. Uh, it's the dominant position at Trinity. It's the dominant position at most of your major evangelical schools. Um, the, uh, the, now, there are those who don't believe in the tribulation. Those tend to be a little bit more staunchly reformed, like a Westminster or Reformed or Knox. Um, so. so, like Southern Adventist theological seminaries, or Reformed seminaries? Most, not, not all, but most. Uh, they're, they're, that, that would be of the large majority. Al yeah, Al Mohler. Um, yeah. Post-tribulational. Post, post Pre-millennial, oh, post-tribulational. Post -tribulational. So there is going to be a, you know, a, a period of tribulation followed by a, an initial rapture of the saints followed by the establishment of the kingdom. But there's no gap between the rapture and the second coming. They happened at the same time. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But yeah, basically the idea is uh, Jesus appears in the sky, the church then um, rises to act as sort of his, his, his entourage.
to bring to bring him. <laughs> well, they're not going to leave. They're just they're just going to temporarily sort of you know line the way as he as he as he descends to earth, if I can put it that way. It's it, yeah I, I know it, it, for those who perhaps aren't familiar with the tradition, it seems goofy. Um, it's it's the majority view within conservative evangelicalism. So it's it's I I. I, I yeah, so we'll recognize that that that's the case. So, no, Dallas is Dallas is pre-tribulational. Yeah, so some of your dispensational schools are all pre-trib, pre-mill. That's where we are at at Detroit Seminary. Okay. Any questions on those terms? Because I will use pre-mill and pre-trib and sort of assume you know what I mean. <laughs> okay? Bibli bibliography, I don't want to spend too much time here, but some key sources here. I have a longer one that I use at seminary, but uh, um, uh, just some key ones here. There's a, uh, there's a four views book, three views book on the rapture. Paul Feinberg writes the uh, defense of the uh, pre-tribulational rapture, which I think is perhaps one of the best defenses here of that. Herman Hoyt, your textbook, I really like the way he walks through it. He just goes it very systematically and thoroughly. Um, I, it's, it's, it's a very simple approach, and I've, I've really liked it. If you want the longer version, uh, J. Dwight Pentecost's book, Things to Come, it's about twice as long, pretty much covers the same material and comes to the same conclusions, but gives a little bit more detail. So if you're if you read uh, Hoyt and say, you know, I want more, I want more, uh, Pentecost, I think, is a good, uh, uh, you know, advanced textbook for you here. Um, uh, John MacArthur and Dick Mayhew have put together a, uh, another book that's similar uh, in style to Hoyt's uh, The End Times, Christ's Prophetic Plans. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, a, that's a little bit more current, a little bit more recent here. Uh, there's a couple of books here on the kingdom, uh, McLean's uh, Greatness of the Kingdom and Vlock's book, He Will Reign Forever. Both of these are very helpful uh, treatments here of the kingdom. Um, we're going to have to deal with some of the uh, details of individual eschatology here, and so I have a treatment here, a defense on a literal hell. Now, a lot of people don't believe in a hell. The reason they don't believe in hell is because they don't like the idea, uh, but that's not a good argument for it not existing. Uh, and so we're going to see if we can't uh, establish here biblically uh, the, the fact that there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. Okay? So those are some of the, uh, some of the more helpful materials there uh, that uh, you might be able to use. Okay? Any, I always ask this, I rarely get a question, but uh, anything that you, 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 I've got this book, can you tell me what it's about? It, it does, do you, within, within this uh, within this schema here. Um, something that's not here, or perhaps something you want a little, little bit more about what is on the list? So there's books that are all over the place, and if I can, I'll try and sort of put them into a pigeonhole if I can. Oh, the, the, the LaHaye La, 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 La series? Yeah, those are, those are very popular. Uh, treatments uh, of, and uh, they're 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 written largely from a premillennial pre-tribulational point of view, but there's a lot of 
fiction to them. And sometimes the lines between fiction and theology blur. So I wouldn't use them as theology textbooks. They're interesting. A lot, in many ways, these, this is the way it might be, um, and sort of filling in the gaps where the Bible is silent, which can be a dangerous thing to do. I mean, if, if, if you recognize that that's what it is, it can be an, an interesting diversion. Uh, at the same time, be careful with that. Don't, don't take all of your theology from the, from the details of those stories. Yeah. Okay, so let's start here on this uh, idea of individual eschatology, and we're going to start with this idea of physical death. I hate to bring it up here, but uh, it's the next thing on most of our eschatological calendars, right? Okay, we're all going to die, okay, and I think it's really important that we make preparation for that, you know, uh, understand what that's going to mean, what, what's going to happen to me, what's, happen, what's going to happen to my spouse if he or she precedes me. What, what, what are they going to experience? What can I anticipate when I go? I had a, had a professor, one of my readers for my dissertation, Rod Decker. Uh, some of you may know him. He was here at the, the seminary 30-some years ago. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he knew he had terminal cancer, and he spent the next six, eight months preparing his wife for what was going to happen in terms of an eschatological calendar, like, okay, this is where I'm going to go. This is what it's going to be like. This is what's going to happen when you get here. Um, and and, and so, so he, he spent the next six, eight months just schooling his wife on, on the way it's going to be. And I think it was a very useful time for her and for him as they thought biblically about the end. I think there's a tendency for us to sort of not talk about the end. Uh, we don't like to think about it. Uh, we're, we're a little bit, you know, we, we're a little bit quizzical. We're not sure exactly what it's going to be. And it's a lot of work to sort of unearth some of those details. So I want to spend some time here talking about death. Uh, for some, it may be closer than others. But uh, I think it's important for us to recognize that this is something that the Bible speaks significantly about, and we can prepare for that, okay? So what is death? Well, there's three uses of death in Scripture, and, uh, and uh, there's a solution to all three. Well, actually, the one there is no solution to, but let's walk through this here, okay? So the idea of death is not, uh, is not annihilation, okay? It's not as though when we die, we simply cease to exist, uh, rather, the idea is separation, okay? Uh, we shouldn't be thinking of death as annihilation, non-existence, or some sort of a perpetual unconsciousness. The Seventh-day Adventists speak about this idea of soul sleep, uh, such that the soul is asleep uh, along with the body until the end. Uh, but need, none of these is actually correct. Okay, now sometimes the Scripture does use the term sleep to describe death, but that's, that's language of appearance. We shouldn't imagine that our souls are asleep until the second coming of Christ. Uh, it, it's really the language of appearance. It appears as though someone is asleep in death, and it's sort of a euphemistic way of describing someone who is dead. Okay? 
And then perhaps there's also this idea of the departure of the consciousness to another location. And so that's why we sometimes use, I think, perhaps better uh, uh, metaphors like departing or passing away. Okay? So the idea is that the, the soul slips out and goes somewhere else, uh, which is perhaps a better metaphor than a, perhaps a better... I don't want to say it's better because the Bible uses sleep, but perhaps a more, a, a more precise metaphor here of what happens in death. Okay? The, the soul departs the body and it passes away. Okay? But what, what are the three kinds of death that appear in Scripture? Well, first there's spiritual death. Okay? Uh, spiritual death is the separation of a person from God. Okay? This is not a metaphysical separation from God, because God is everywhere. So it's not as though the soul is somehow outside the realm of God. Um, in fact, God is everywhere, even in the place of the dead. You know, if I make my bed in hell, in Sheol, David says in Psalm 139, you're there. So, so God is metaphysically uh, present in all of the universe, even in the place of the dead, so even those who are spiritually dead or separated from the life of God are not separated from his presence. Okay? They're under his wrath, uh, but they're not out of his presence. Okay? So what is meant then by spiritual death? Well, it's a removal, I say here, of fellowship with God. Isaiah 59 says this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear. Okay? Um, and so the opposite, according to Romans 11, the opposite of death is reconciliation. Okay? Uh, so that death, uh, the, and the death that Adam experienced was of this description. In the day that Adam ate of the fruit, he had a breach of fellowship with God, okay, does not mean that he is no longer able to be in the same room as God, uh, because the fact is God has multiple conversations with him afterward, okay, uh, but there is a barrier between them, even when they're in the same room, so that Adam, for instance, hides behind some trees when God is walking in, in the cool of the day and says, Adam, where are you? They were in the same room, but there was a barrier between them. Okay? Not an absolute barrier, uh, but a barrier of fellowship here. Okay? And so he was then barred entry to the garden, this place of divine blessing, and was barred the daily fellowship of the, uh, the, the, the tree of life and uh, with any uh, direct daily fellowship with God that he has experienced there. And so that uh, disappears uh, when, uh, when Adam sins. So there's a removal of fellowship, and then this is coupled with a complete insensitivity to the things of God. So man who is spiritually dead is unwilling, I say, and unable to initiate any true righteousness or make any positive overture to God. Okay? And so we find this, uh, particularly in the book of Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead in our transgressions. And then he goes on to describe that in verse 12. You were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. So his definition, Paul's definition of spiritual death, is 
separate from Christ and all of the benefits that he supplies, having no hope and without God in the world. It means that God doesn't, it's not as though God doesn't exist for them, but he is of no value to them. There is no benefit that they derive from the existence of God, at least in terms of redemptive terms. So that's what dead in transgression means. Okay? And we live among a lot of people who are dead. Okay? And you say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, if we're talking about spiritual death, yes, it does. They are insensitive to the things of God. They want nothing to do with God. It doesn't mean they're not walking around and not, you know, not exhibiting all the forms of physical life. Uh, but they are spiritually dead, and that's how the Bible describes them. Okay? So spiritual death is the condition of all men at birth, and the only remedy for spiritual death is regeneration. That is, to be born again, or to receive newness of life. Okay, so that's the only solution to spiritual death, is regeneration life. Okay? There is a, an advanced form of spiritual death, uh, which is described in the book of Revelation as the second death. Okay? If the first death was spiritual death, the second death is spiritual death rendered permanent. Okay? So the second death is the permanent final separation of the person from God, the irrevocable perpetuation of spiritual death marked by the termination of all benefits of grace. Okay? So in Revelation 20, very end of the book, Death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Next chapter, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. Okay? So those who persist throughout their physical lives and, make, and, and, and do not cry out to God for forgiveness and die in this situation eventually come to this place where they experience the second death, where the spiritual death is, is, is confirmed, if I can put it that way. Okay? Um, you know, we, we, we sometimes, there's, there's two words that are used in the scriptures for the place of the wicked dead, uh, and we're going to talk about that, but there's, there's a place that's Sheol, uh, that's the temporary place of the dead. Sometimes, you, sometimes that's translated hell, some of our translations. Uh, but then, this, this is, if, if, I can, if I can put it this way, it's, it's, it's kind of like what, uh, what uh, jail is. Okay? It's a temporary holding place until the judgment can be made. And then, the lake of fire, the second death, would be the carrying out of the final sentence of the judge, which is permanent incarceration in this place called the lake of fire. Uh, uh, and so, the, so yeah, there's two, there's two places, one a temporary place, one a permanent place. And I think sometimes we sort of elide them together as though they're the same thing, but they're not. Yeah. Is the Sheol, are they suffering there too? Yes. According to Luke, uh, the rich man who is in Sheol or Hades uh, lifts up his eyes being in torment and says, I need water. Uh, so, yes, apparently he's suffering there, but not to the same degree as they will in that final place. So, the second death, I say here, is the fate of all the unregenerate. 
it has no remedy. Once you get to this point, there is no second chance. Uh, no, there's no remedy for this, this terrible place. And then we come to physical death. And this is what we're going to try and expand here uh, moving forward in this section here. But this is what we tend to think of when we think, when we hear the word death, this is usually what we're thinking of. It's the temporary separation of the body, the material part of mankind, from the soul and spirit, that is the immaterial part of mankind. Okay? And uh, I, I, I just got a couple of verses here where the idea of separation and departing are paired with the term death, uh, where I think it, so, so that I think it makes the point here. I believe this is uh, Sarah here. Her soul was departing and she died. Okay? So that's, that's the description there of her death. She died and her soul departed. So where did it depart to? Well, that's, that's the question, right? But it, it, it doesn't stay with the body, but it doesn't just cease to exist. It departed. It went somewhere. Okay. James 2 speaks about the body without the spirit being dead. So a body in which the spirit has departed, this body is classified as dead. But that doesn't mean the spirit has ceased to exist. The spirit has moved on. The body is dead, but the spirit lives on. Okay. And so physical death is the separation of the material, the body, from the immaterial, which we would call the soul or the spirit. Okay. Now I say physical death involves the whole person. Uh, so when uh, you know, we, we talk about, it's, it's not quite right to say that the body dies uh, and the soul doesn't. There's a, the separation is mutual. Okay? So even though the soul remains animated, that, that soul is, is in some sense incomplete. Uh, so the person dies. Okay? Uh, even though the soul lives on, the person dies. What is normal for humanity dies. Okay? So, and, and the reason I say that is because there, there, are, there are those who imagine that somehow the body is inferior, unimportant, less important, and it's, it's kind of like good riddance. Yeah, because I want one that's got a full head of hair. <laughs> yeah, right. And, 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 and you know, in, 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 in the uh, biblical period, there was one theory of Greek philosophy, uh, Platonism, followers of Plato, who believed that, uh, we are, that, uh, this, that our bodies were the prison house of the soul. And so the goal was to escape the prison house of the soul. In fact, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a religion, the Stoic religion, it's referenced in Acts 17. Uh, so, and uh, this, they, they really took this Platonic idea to new heights. And uh, the, 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 the military of the Roman Empire were almost all Platonists. They were all Platonic because somebody who doesn't mind whether he dies and actually looks forward to it, it actually makes a pretty good soldier. You know, they're fearless because they don't fear death. They're actually anticipating and looking forward to it. Um, and so, so this was a, something that was quite, quite active in the biblical, in, during the period of the biblical writing. And I think it sort of persists even today that the, the spiritual is what matters, the physical doesn't. And I think it's important, particularly as we look at this, this whole timeline, the millennium is on earth, and we're going to be there in bodies. And 
The resurrected state, yeah, and the resurrected state's the same way. Because to be a complete human is not to be rid of the body, but to be given a glorified body. Okay? And so it's imp- I think it's important that we, that we recognize here uh, that, that death is a bad thing. Physical death is a bad thing. It, it renders that soul, even though it lives on, incomplete. Uh, that soul is an incomplete. In fact, you know, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, uh, you know, he, he has one of, those, one of those wrestling matches he has with himself. I, I, I want to leave, but I want to stay. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and what does he say? I don't want to be a naked soul. I, I, I kind of like keep, I, I know there's problems with this body, but I kind of like keeping it around. I don't really want to go into this, this, this state in which I am disembodied. That's, that's an incomplete state for humanity. Uh, the complete state for humanity is the soul paired with a glorified body. And that's what we look forward to. We don't, we don't look for escape from the body. We look for a new body, a resurrected body. We anticipate the resurrection. So, yeah. Okay. So the whole person dies, and so that soul, while conscious, is incomplete. And Paul described the in, this disembodied soul as naked, unclothed. And while this condition is better, you know, to, to depart is much better because I am with Christ, it's not perfect. Okay. The perfected state is my soul being paired with a body that is glorified. Okay? So physical death, I say here, is the inevitable fate of all men, with a couple of notable exceptions, Enoch, Elijah, and then those church saints who are raptured. And its remedy is resurrection. So physical death is for all a bad thing. You know, my, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here with the realization that my dad may, may well be on his deathbed right now, and he and and he's actually and my mom died last year and so he's he's actually got his eyes looking forward, and he tells us don't don't cry for me, um, life hasn't been all that great since your mom died and you know I'm I'm ready to go and that's that's a I, I mean it's a healthy way of thinking, at the same time, there's a realization that departing this body renders me incomplete. It's not something I just I get to die. Now, it, that, that shouldn't be the, uh, the sense that we have because physical death does render us incomplete. It's far better to be with Christ without a body, but it's going to be better still when we are with Christ with a glorified body. Okay? And so that's the anticipation that we have uh, after uh, physical death. Okay? So where does death come from? Well, death comes after Adam's sin. Death was not part of the original creation. Uh, God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. Um, Humanity is not intrinsically mortal. Now, after the fall, humanity is intrinsically mortal. Uh, But prior to the fall, man could have lived forever. It was subjected to death only after the seeds of corruption were sown in it. And this was apparently true of all conscious life prior to the fall. You know, and so we, we find, for instance, uh, not only in Romans 5 that through one man death came to all men, uh, but according to Romans chapter 8, through one man 
death comes to the whole created realm. It actually becomes something of an important argument for young earth creationism. There was no death before Adam sinned, okay? And so not even animals, okay? So what does, what does, what does Romans uh, 8 here say uh, in verse 19? Uh, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed because the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The whole creation groans in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And uh, Paul indicates that death enters into the created realm with with the sin of Adam and persists until the restoration of mankind in the resurrection. The resurrection of the sons of God will then repair uh, the rest of the creation as well. Okay? And so death was not part of the original creation. Instead, death comes as a result of Adam's sin. Find here Genesis 2, In the day that you eat from the tree, you will surely die. Genesis 3, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Romans 5, through one man sin entered into the world and death through that sin and then it spread to all persons. And in Adam all die. So death comes to the rest of the human race through Adam, and I think also to the rest of creation. A couple of things I, I want to say here. One's not in the notes, one is. Um, we, we sometimes talk about uh, death for plants. Um, you know, sometimes we'll talk about, yeah, you know, my violet died. You know, it, it's limp there on the, on the, uh, on the counter there. Um, the, the scriptures actually never use death to describe plant life. Okay, um, plants are not considered alive by the biblical definition. I know by the scientific definition, yes, they are, but we're, we're talking about different definitions. There is no soul, <laughs> in, uh, there is no immaterial of plants that lives on. Okay, and so while we talk about plants dying, we probably should not think of the death of plants as something that violates this principle. You know, Adam and Eve. We're chomping on apples, and you know that apple died in some sense because he ate it. But that that's not that's not classified death in the scriptures. There's never a scripture anywhere that talks about the plants being living things. Okay, living things is is restricted in scriptural usage uh, to zoological life. That is, and, and, and the definition seems to be that which moves on the face of the earth. So something that has independent movement, it's not tied down. I know there's some sort of in-between, you know, sponges, are they animals, are they plants? I, I, I don't know that the scriptures give us, you know, real details on that. But animals have a form of life, but plants don't. So plants did die before the fall. Animals I don't think did, because they are called living things. And there was no death before the fall. 
Questions on that? Does that make sense? That follow? follow? I'm not trying to make you change your vocabulary and how you, how you talk about plants, but, but you can still call plants dying, but, uh, but realize that there is a, a biblical definition of life that is fairly technical. It doesn't always match the biological definitions that you learned in, in, you know, in high school. It, and I'm not saying that they were wrong in defining that way. It's just that uh, they're, they're talking about different things. One last question, I think we'll probably uh, wrap it up with this uh, to, to, uh, uh, tonight. How can we explain the fact that Adam really didn't die on the day he ate the fruit, right? The, the statement was made, on the day that you eat of this tree, the fruit of this tree, you will surely die, okay? Separation, separation from God's fellowship. Okay, that's, that's one option. Uh, there's actually a couple of possibilities here. So, so that's, we'll, we'll keep that one We'll keep that one out there, uh, but there's, there's, there's actually a couple of possibilities here. Um, yeah, so, so when Adam ate of the fruit, it's not as though, it, like Snow White or something, where you know, he bites into it and boom, uh, falls down to the ground. So that didn't happen. So he didn't die physically, at least in any sort of a absolute sense, okay? So how, 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 you know, and, and this, is, this has been used by many to say, you know, the Bible lied. You know, God lied there. He said that Adam was going to die, and Adam didn't die. Um, so what, what can we do with this? Well, I've already suggested, as our brother here in the front, what's your name? Aaron. Aaron. Okay, so uh, as Aaron suggested here, Adam died spiritually when he ate of the fruit. So even though he lived on physically, he died spiritually. But... This explanation, I think, seems to be something of a technical escape from a more obvious meaning that Eve probably would have inferred. You know, when, when God says to Eve, if you eat this, you'll die, I don't think she was, I don't think she even had a, a means of conceiving of the idea of spiritual death. Okay? I think she thought, you know, if I eat of this fruit, I will physically die. And so I think it's kind of a technicality if we say, yeah, you did die, you just didn't realize it. You know, it's, it, seems like a, it seems like a sort of a, a cheap trick uh, that God engages in. And I don't, I don't, I don't like giving, uh, crediting God with cheap tricks, right? Okay. And Genesis 3 and 1 Corinthians 15 are pretty clear that physical death was incurred at the fall. Uh, the reason that people die is because Adam sinned and Eve sinned. You know, that's why people die, and that's why they die physically. Uh, so, so it does seem like the testimony of the rest of the Scripture is that people do die physically when they sin. Okay? This being the case, how do we harmonize what God says with the, uh, with the death in view um, uh, when, when God said to her, on the day you eat of it? There's two possibilities. God could have intended that on the day of you, that you eat of it, the seeds of mortality will be sown. Okay? So, so the idea here is when you die, you're going to start that long path of decay that ultimately results in your permanent death. And that's possibility. But it doesn't seem, again, to be the obvious meaning. Okay? 
I think there's a better alternative here, uh, that we take the phrase in that day, in Genesis 2, as idiomatic, okay? Um, and thus, when you eat of this, you will, when you eat, you will die, or better, if you eat, you will surely die, okay? Uh, so the statement here that Jesus, that God makes to Adam and Eve is not, not to be understood, it, it's, a, it's an idiomatic, you know, on the day you do this, you're going to die, is not so much on this 24-hour period you will die, but rather just as surely as you eat, you surely will die. And uh, I think that that's uh, perhaps one that uh, commends itself uh, within, the, uh, within the literature. Actually, the NIV in the, and the NLT both take this view. Okay, so uh, you can look that up sometime if you want to. Uh, but the, N the NIV and the NLT have both taken this view that this is idiomatic, uh, that, that when, when God says, on the day you eat of it, you shall die, it's more the sense, if you eat, you will die, most certainly. Um, and I think that, that holds up under exegetical scrutiny. Yeah, Wes? Would this, would, would the, uh, Proverbs 5 and 7, the warning to the son uh, about, about the adulterous woman, you know, about her ways, her death, or the ways, or path to death? kind of idiomatic? Because obviously people didn't, you know, just necessarily Right. Yeah, you get another layer of, of in there because the proverbs the proverbs aren't designed to be absolute immediate guarantees, but rather generalizations. You follow this path, and it's going to lead to death. In every single case, you know. While some people do follow the the, the adulterous woman and live to tell, right, and and live a really long time. So it's not necessarily that it will always happen this way, uh, but rather uh, that this is typically what happens if you follow this path. I think it's, I think it's more than that here. It, it, it's, it's, it, there's, a, there's an air of certainty about it. If you eat, you will die. Not if you eat, you'll probably, it's probably going to end up in your death, but rather if you eat, you will die. So I think, I don't, I'm not sure the parallel is quite there. Uh-huh. You said that the um, definition of death is separation from God. And when Adam <clears throat> made the choice of eating the apple, he rejected God mm -hmm. and he sided with Satan. Yes. And that's where the death occurred. Yeah, certainly spiritual death. There, there's no question there that spiritual death occurs when Adam and Eve sin. The question is, did physical death occur too, and in what sense? And that's uh, why we still die today. Right. Could, because there's clearly a connection between Adam's sin and physical death. What should we, what should we say about that relationship? Because I think there is a relationship. There's, there's more being said here than you'll die spiritually. I think there, there's also this implication that there's going to be some sort of spirit, uh, physical implications, ramifications as well. Yeah. I think generally we're talking something that's temporary. But they would have, I mean, you're talking about, Paul says it's better to be away from the body and somebody is in that state and they get pulled back. It seems... 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of an exceptional thing. I mean, you've got Samuel doing the same thing, right? Yeah. When he's pulled up by this wicked witch at Endor, and he says, why have you disturbed my rest? Um, so, it, but it's an exceptional, very strange circumstance uh, that, you know, shrouded in mystery. And I think you, even when you think about this scene, you have smoke coming up, right? <laughs> because because that's, it's, 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 it's exceptional, it's strange, it's, um, and it's a one-of-a-kind kind of a thing. When Christ rose from the grave, there were some people who actually, there, there, was, there was this, there was the implication that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has broad implications for the human race, and it would have been just a, I mean, you'd, you'd, it would be worth it to be able to walk around on the earth for another six hours if, if you could be the one sort of heralding the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So there are exceptions, but the, the rule is you die. You, 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 you don't get a new body until the resurrection, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, it, and, it's, and it's better for us. <laughs> right. Right. Yes, sir. On top of everything that's been said, would it be fair to say also that we died to his perfect plan, that Adam died to God's perfect plan for us? I'm not sure that that's necessarily the sense there that, that's used. I mean, there, it's the idea is a separation from. On top of everything else. Yeah. Right. I mean, I suppose you could say, metaphorically speaking, yeah, that that every blessing that comes from God is now cut off, and so it it is it is a broad it is a broad statement. But I I don't know that you actually see death used in Scripture in that precise way, if I can put it that way. Okay. Well, we've exhausted our time here, so we will pick up here uh, next time and uh, plug away. Thanks for all coming back, front coming out. It was a, I think it was a good first first stab at this.